Hey guys, welcome back. Today we are jumping into a movie that occupies a distinct turning point in one of Canada's most well-known genre filmmakers. This is Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. Today we're looking at the 1988 film uh, Dead Ringers by David Cronenberg. It stars Jeremy Irons, Genevieve Bouillard, and Heidi von Pauleski. Uh, the writers were David Cronenberg himself and Norman Snyder. Uh, it's based on a book by Barry Wood uh, with the title Twins. Uh, the score was by the great Howard Shore. Um, the, uh, the DOP cinematographer was uh, Peter Soschitsky. Um, this was nominated for 12 Genie Awards or Canadian Film Awards, and it won 10. Uh, it was made for $13 million, and its initial run, it made $8 million of it back. I'm sure it's now broken even. I mean, I would imagine so. I guess, Ryan, what is the context? Why did you pick this film for us to watch? Uh, well, so I first saw it when I was in university uh, before I went to film school, but when I was taking my English degree, I was also doing a film minor. And in my Canadian film class, this was the movie that we watched that was meant to uh, sort of be a, an, a representation of, of David Cronenberg as a Canadian filmmaker, which is an odd choice. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about why and, and things that we talked about in that class. But um, I remember coming out of it or rather going into it for the first while, and I know we talked about this before, I think you'll say the same thing, the first time I saw it, uh, it made me, and even still in rewatches, it makes me really uncomfortable. Um, and at first I didn't like that, but when I walked out of it and started thinking about it after that first watch, I was really impressed at how well he integrated this sort of sense of unease and discomfort throughout this story that is a little more mundane and, and a little more like in the realm of, of drama to, to sort of begin with. And yet you still kind of get this sense of discomfort through the whole thing that I was really impressed with. But uh, really, there are two reasons in total that I picked it. The first one is that it is a pivotal turning point as I said in the intro, to in Cronenberg's film career as far as what he did before, what he did after, and how his sort of cinema was changing. Um, and it also, the second reason, is that it's a really, really good example of his storytelling and his filmmaking techniques and how he, how he brings his own sort of flair and style to the movies that he makes. Uh, for myself, this podcast is the first time I've seen this movie all the way through. Is this the first time that's happened? Uh, for me, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Um, can't remember now, but there was one other movie neither of us had saw prior to watching. Well, this is the first time I've seen one that you haven't, so Th that win for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, uh, yeah, chalk one up for the good guys. Um, yeah, so... Um, I mean, Cronenberg is a as a director I'm both aware of and had seen other films by. Um, I I was saying to you, ironically, for what he's known as, I've seen more of his commercial, like more recent work or the last twenty years kind of stuff than I have his body horror stuff of the late seventies, early eighties. 
and um but he's one of those directors that um people reference in the same way um i always think back to the noah bombback film squid and the whale there's a the there's a character trying to sound intellectual and he keeps referring to Kafka things that that are Kafka esque. Yep, yep. And then someone brings up a Kafka story, and he says it's very Kafka esque, and they give him a weird <laughs> look. Um, but uh, yeah, and so but like uh, talking in film school and and to other filmmakers and stuff, people will say Cronenberg esque or Cronenberg this or Cronenberg that. It's referenced um, in Rick and Morty. Yeah. Oh, big time. And uh, Cronenberg World or something, isn't it? They or just Planet? call them the Cronenbergs. When they make weird mutated monsters. Yeah, it's in, yeah. So the, he's he for many people he is who put body horror on the map. There was some other directors obviously working in that field, but he's the he's the father of to to many horror fans. And why I haven't watched a lot of his early stuff <laughs> is because I uh, that's a, a genre that I'm um, I've purposely missed out on a lot of films by because I'm I'm not a massive fan of the uh, the horror genre in itself yeah yeah no that's that's fair i i kind of am in the same boat and i think that before we get into the movie i did want to talk a little bit about cronenberg and his career path which uh is important to why i kind of picked this movie to talk about um i have not seen a lot of his older body horror stuff as well i saw the fly but that's kind of it until some of his more modern pieces if you can call it that Uh, but Whenever anybody talks about David Cronenberg, you, you, I've always heard it in context for his body horror. The kind of stuff that started with, I guess, Shivers in 1975, which was what it was called in Canada. But in the States, I believe it was what they come from within. Yeah, that's right. And I actually, really funny looking up research for this thing. I saw an interview that was like, for, it must have been like early 80s, 84 or something like that. Uh, that it was a panel. It was John Carpenter, John Landis, and David Cronenberg, and they were talking about fear on film was the the topic they were discussing. So they're discussing horror movies, and Cronenberg uh, very interestingly set out, and he used that title as an example, the American title for Shivers, They Came From Within, um, as an example, or as kind of his how he sees horror compared to how some other people make horror movies. John Landis a couple times references monster flicks talking about horror movies. And David Cronenberg astutely points out that he doesn't make external horror movies. He doesn't make where the scary thing is outside the house trying to get in. He makes the scary thing from within the body trying to get out or from within the person, within their psyche, within like, so it's his, his horror is very internal it's the struggle between often the like mind and the body is a lot of and how they are uh, it's a symbiotic relationship but they're they're they can be counterintuitive to each other sometimes yeah yeah that i mean that makes that that fits pretty well with what i've seen of his stuff he also at the same time has said in interviews too that he he intends his horror to be inventive and metaphorical in a lot of ways um, which when I heard that, I kind of ran with it a little bit in my head, having watched this movie. Uh, there's a lot of people that talk about Dead Ringers in a more negative light because it's it's a turning point in his career where he goes from uh, over a decade of making body horror, sort of low-budget B-list horror movies like The Fly and The Brood and 
and Videodrome and, and a bunch of other ones um, that got him his, his bigger fan base. And then he changes gears and goes into what is, in his own words, a drama. Um, and But one of the things I found really interesting about this movie that I think comes really strongly from his experience is that he brings everything he used and learned in that decade plus of making those kind of films um, and and almost brings them into this film in, in a lot of ways where he takes those those elements of body horror and those elements of fear and discomfort into a, a genre that does not generally have that level of horror to it. Um, but likewise, uh, one of the things that I found interesting to think about, and it's something that I, I, in my future, will be doing some more digging into, uh, but I, I would make a bold statement, which is to say that I think that Cronenberg brings to the horror movies he makes the level of metaphor and story craft and character craft that he uses in his later movies as far as as telling um, dramas that are not generally present in horror horror is really known for being people go to it for escapism and it's not known for having really complex deep stories to it a lot of times I don't think but I think that that's what fired up his career a lot is the amount of depth that goes into even the the sort of ex- exploitation films that he made through that 70s and 80s. Yeah, I think that's a really astute point because um, something that I've kind of, I was a little scared coming into this podcast even to discuss this film just because there's either a ton there or nothing <laughs> there. <laughs> um, and I happen to uh, think it's the former. Like it's, it's there's a, there's a lot of um, nuance and a lot of a lot of subtext, I think, to unpack in this story, and I think that's really scary to talk about because I, I, having only recently digested this movie for the first time, um, or have only ingested this movie, I haven't yet <laughs> digested this movie, and um, and it's it's so for me, it's it's a little like usually I've come into most of these podcasts with a little bit of a larger depth of knowledge on the films we've been talking about in this one um it's a little fresher so my ideas are a little bit more like not fully formed and they're still like in the in their adolescence i guess in in forming and um and but i i think that's like it's a really interesting idea and the fact that um I think you're right that he brings a lot of the tension building and and stuff that horror is a trademark for and then he brings it into more of this drama and this is also the late 80s where like erotic thriller like <laughs> is how I would have qualified this if I was a marketing person yeah because they they were very much on the rise at the end of the 80s uh, I think I forget why I feel like I talked about this on an earlier podcast but uh, like um, body of evidence and and uh, basic instinct and stuff like that like th- erotic thrillers was a very big um or a very burgeoning market at this time, I guess. I, I don't have dates on it exactly, but I I would propose that perhaps part of that is because attitudes about what you could show on film had changed and were changing, and you could be more um, 
lewd, I guess, and a little more sexy on camera and show more than you used to be able to, and people were really running with that. Well, and to make reference again to that same interview from the early 80s that I saw on YouTube with uh, John Landis, John Carpenter, and and um, David Cronenberg. A lot of Johns. Yeah. the uh, All three of the men made reference to the MPAA in the States giving higher ratings to uh, sexuality than violence. That... They were fine with, like, the scanner's head explosion, but they weren't fine with, like, a pair of breasts or a, or a man's ass or things like that. But they were okay with uh, a chest cavity opening up and swallowing arms and, and stuff for reference. It, it's a crazy, a crazy uh, double standard, I guess, that still is kind of a problem today, I think. Like, why, why we're more comfortable showing violent acts rather than acts of love seems very strange to me but yeah i think it's i think it's honestly down to parents not wanting to have conversations with their kids where if it's violence it's easy to go that's violence and that's war or that's this that's that and then that you can push that off to a side category of something you don't need to deal with child but with sex that's a far more uh, i mean obviously intimate thing and uh requires a far more awkward conversation to have with you with a child that like any like most parents i think are like there's still a prudish attitude towards having that conversation yeah i i I think not being you know this coming from a guy who's not in touch with a lot of modern parents but i think that a lot of people i know and and uh and talk to don't necessarily the, the the percentage of people who are comfortable and open and want to talk to kids about that kind of thing is a lot lower than people who would just rather not have to worry about it i will say it's probably like a much closer um, uh, paradigm than it was in the 80s, like the end of the 80s, I think there would have been a lot more prudish parents. And because this is just before they found like parents formed a advisory board for music because of rap artists coming out in the late 80s. So and this was like the end of Reagan and the start of uh, Bush senior. And and that might have been a bit of a switch around the erotic thriller too, because the Reagan era was very prudish, and maybe the Bu- I can't see the Bush era being necessarily <laughs> like let's all party in the streets. But um, no, it's it's just it, it's an interesting film for a bunch of reasons, and Cronenberg's career, as you kind of got into, is very interesting, and it it seems when I was like reading things from blogs and stuff from fans that they they break his work down into three periods. And this being the start of the second period, which I think I described earlier as the art house period. And so there was the B-movie period that ends with the fly. Then this starts the art house period, which ends with, I don't know, like something late in the late 90s. So either Crash or maybe the early 2000s Spider. And then, and then History of Violence starts the third period. His more commercial studio world yeah. time. And hilariously, like as soon as he gets into that world... Even though it's like later in his career, he, that's Oscar nominations start falling out of his pockets. <laughs> but back when he was making this, they didn't. He didn't even get a sniff of the Oscars. I mean, can, the Canadian Film Awards or Genies recognized him, but the fact that he like this, the fact that um, Jeremy Irons doesn't didn't get acting nominations for this movie is mind blowing. Yeah, shocking. and and I think it's it's more a statement about problems with that award system and problems with the industry hierarchy itself uh more so than it is with commentary on movies and 
And maybe maybe it's because I'm a Canadian filmmaker who understands the struggles of being a Canadian filmmaker. But uh, there, there's this there's this level of of accessibility where until you join them, as it were, and become a part of the like the herd of the Hollywood crowd, you're always going to kind of be on the outside of of everything. And unfortunately it it kind of seems to become a balance between whether you want to make the movies you want to make or whether you want to make a lot of money and be very successful at what you do yeah perhaps and i i don't know if that's a like it's and it's for mainly english language canadian filmmakers yes yeah because the french language canadian filmmakers get that opportunity to feel foreign to the u.s before they join that system or whatever yeah yeah. whereas the movies that English language Canadians are making feel a part of that system, whether they are or not, because we have the same accent it to many ears out there and that kind of thing. And I mean, we're so inundated with their culture and their media and everything anyways, that like a lot of our art and a lot of our film seems to try to be like theirs. And maybe that's why it doesn't work because we're trying to fit ourselves into a box that we don't belong in we don't have the budget for we don't have the market for whatever whereas like the more successful canadian films seem to be the ones that don't try and do that perhaps and i think there's something to that and there's a greater discussion to be had about that kind of thing but i I think the biggest reason is this it's the stories we tell i think yeah i think um english language canada has a problem with culture and therefore (laughs) has a problem with telling stories from that culture and it, and it's just because and I think that's a there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think even topographically the fact that English language Canada is spread out to so many regions across the can- country that and comes from so many places and come but then therefore it each region has its own tradition. So that's the stuff that I think works the best. Like Letterkenny works because it feels small town Ontario, but equally then feels like small town all across Canada. Trailer Park Boys, small town, like trailer, trash, Nova Scotians, but it feels somewhat like the experience of people all across Canada. And so you have to, the thing is, I think Canada often takes the names of cities we, we set our stories and takes the, takes the Canadiana out of it, trying to make it more uniform and more universal. And by that, we make it feel less... Um, identifiable yeah and less relatable by by making it super specific like going down to other canadian successful stuff like the tragically hip was one of the greatest uh, music bands that canada's produced that were big inside of canada not elsewhere but when they sang songs they sang them about bob cajun and about like a specific trial in saskatchewan and about different like they picked very canadiana things and and were but they told these very very specific stories that then everybody across Canada was able to relate to. And I think that um, that is a major problem with English language cinema. But um, going back to a point you mentioned earlier about him, about this being a thriller, and then I said it was an art, like I would classify it almost an as an erotic drama. thriller. Erotic thriller, yeah. Yeah, and well, an art house drama. But it's it. Um, both you and I watched this on Amazon Prime Canada, and it was qualified as a horror movie on that. And I don't know like to me that that's another thing that the film industry does which is it's for with actors you call it typecasting um so what did you play last time that's what you can play this time or 
and so what's the last movie you made what's the movie oh you're known as like the father of body horror well then everything you do is horror as a horror movie which i think is part of why this this film in particular had a bit of a a split in how it was received there's there are a lot of reviews and things out there that talk about it as like his greatest film and and like 10 stars out of 10 stars and all that jazz and then there's not a lot of middle ground and then there's a lot of like four and lower with people talking about not connecting with it or not getting what they expected out of it or it was just too weird or too uncomfortable and and i think that you know when you come into a movie expecting uh, a horror from a director who makes body horror movies and the movie gets billed as a horror movie then you're you're not getting what you expect out of this movie and therefore you're not watching it in the right way yeah if and there's, there's no right way obviously but. no and that's true but and in that interview both you and i have referenced in which the director himself calls this a, a more standard drama um he then proceed. He he, er, he follows that by saying, "And that's helpful for an audience to know that this isn't a horror movie going in," which I found a very interesting take from the director. I don't know if that was from preview screenings. He was seeing how people were reacting or what, but it seems like from that interview, he knew almost that it was being marketed incorrectly, <laughs> uh, which I found kind of amusing um, because this this movie really contemporary reviews weren't too kind to this movie hit like you said his fans felt it was too much of a departure and people that weren't his fans didn't find it um easy enough to to easy enough material to dive into so it was it then found this weird middle ground which probably led to like it was definitely a flop in comparison to his two previous movies dead zone and the fly which were massive hits yeah i I guess that's something too that like part of what i was trying to get at a little bit with my opening about Cronenberg as a director is that he so in some interviews later interviews like this was I don't know Tiff did uh, an original that we've both referenced as well I think uh, a little series on this movie Uh, and in it there's a segment with Howard Shore and he talks about how uh, Cronenberg doesn't make his ideas obvious or clear in his movies and that if something is like right on the surface and easy to access it's not the whole story and it's not what he's really going for the last bit is my own rephrasing of of how he says things but um i think that that's what's really interesting about how he approached his body horror in the same way that it is how he approached this and it's why he i think is able to fluidly jump genres a little bit more is because rather than making a film that is a like just trying to be the genre film he's working in the genre but he's using metaphor and deeper meaning and providing all of these things for the audience to think about that you have to pay attention to because this movie has a lot of stuff that on the first two watches i missed and then going back through again i was like it's still not clear but i'm picking up on a line this character says here or a look that that character makes there that suggests something that's never made clear but it implies certain ideas and themes and i it goes back to something you said in your context and i failed to mention in my context but that um when i first the first my first viewing of this movie was just last week and in preparation for this and i and i had thought i had seen it when we were prepping to do this episode i remember telling you oh i've seen that years ago and i've seen parts of it and i've seen enough 
film, not references necessarily, but like stills and things like the, um, the costume design for the scrubs, um, in the, in the operating room that feels to me, to me, the, the little like kid with the Catholic upbringing felt very Cardinal-esque, very Bishop-esque, even the way in that one scene when he's ripped, when he, when you see him take the, shoot up the heroin or morphine or whatever, and then he goes into the surgery. They're he, folding the like top. And it looks like the, the it, neck piece it, of yeah, a cardinal. Outfit. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it to me. It was like so religious. That's the only but, thing I could see. But the thing is, Cronenberg is an atheist and like doesn't put religious stuff in his movies. He's very much like science is the thing behind everything. But then equally, it was. It, I think it was playing to these characters seeing that operating room as a cathedral, as a place they go to espouse their knowledge and... And, and also their level of self uh their ego in a way that they are so high on themselves and their own abilities and intelligence that they they place themselves at this tier of like church head or godliness in this in this cathedral of theirs yeah yeah um but yeah so so this like you um watching this the first time i didn't like it but again when i then thought about why i didn't like it it wasn't any of the filmmaking or the film craft all of that stuff i was very impressed with it was just that i felt uncomfortable watching it and um i think that goes to the points you've been making already which is that he's a master at making you feel uncomfortable even with as you and i discussed like i have my theory is that until the the famous uh, dream sequence in around yep, the 50 yep. minute mark where there's a little bit of body horror for the first time in the movie. Um, this movie is an eighties rom-com setup. Act one could be the beginning yeah. of an eighties. One brother sure. is shy <laughs> and one brother is exciting and they both fall for the same girl. But womp, womp, like, and it's, it's that kind of, it's like a, and there are in a very like Canadian, British dry humor kind of thing. It's very, there's like some humorous, pretty humorous scenes in the, in the, I mean, some of it's crass, uh, like the drunken speech Beverly gives or whatever is pretty crass, but it's, that's a humorous scene. That's a scene. That's like Cronenberg doing a rom-com scene. It's humorous, but it also left me feeling really uncomfortable too, but only because I was empathizing at the moment I was watching it, I guess, as like feeling strongly with him so when he's there and he's drunk i was i was cringing at the embarrassment of being up there i guess more than anything else but like it's still it's funny and humorous and and feels real yeah and but i mean yeah and it just but again it goes to cronenberg's mastery of of guiding the audience through filmmaking and i i think that all starts with the title sequence yeah yeah that's that was a great segue because if you hadn't done it i was about to do it uh so Something that is, it's a, a trope of older movies, obviously, which is that the way they used to be made was the title sequence was first. You would get your your title, your like your directors, your like main cast, all the really important people at the beginning, and you'd get some title sequences. And there was a lot of movies that went really creative and made really interesting and engaging opening title sequences. And it's something that doesn't happen much in modern movies and i think it's an attention span thing where filmmakers are worried that if they have these longer title sequences people will flip away from their movie because they're not engaged immediately with it that's a kind of a funny point you've made because in film school the professor that taught us um was teaching us uh i think he was a directing 
uh, professor. I forget what class it was, but anyways, he was instructing us about title sequences and he was, and at the time this was like 2008. So he was making reference for modern ones to like a few Marvel movies, uh, the Spielberg movie, catch me if you can. And a few other films that had major title sequences in it. Like the catch me if you can title sequence is the whole movie in animation prior to the movie. But what he mentioned is as a massive counterpoint to what you've just said, or, or at least he, he says that a title sequence acts as the buffer between your real life and the film experience. So that the whole point of a film of a title sequence to him was to allow the audience to have 50 seconds to two minutes or whatever, to shed all the worries from life and the rest of whatever is going on in your life and fall into the so that's why it should have kind of a feeling and a context of the film and should be putting you in the emotional state that preparing you to watch the film see so that is exactly what i wanted to say about the title sequence only in not quite so succinct terms i guess but my my entire thought about it was that the title sequence in this movie is so brilliant because it takes all of the key components that you need to know for the movie it's about twins it it involves doctors it involves medical equipment and surgery and female reproductive systems and all of that gets condensed into this uh very well designed sequence of images on blood red backgrounds of just terrifying looking medieval torture instruments or at least tools inspired by medieval torture instruments um and it does a great job of setting you up and putting you in a mind space where you know what the movie is going to ask of you. You know what you need to pay attention to and think about so that when you get to the start of the film, they don't have to spend a bunch of time setting everything up. There's four scenes that give you the backstory to these characters, four short scenes that tell you who they are, how they got to where they are. And then they just jump right into it. But if you don't have that opening title sequence, you need a little more at the beginning, potentially, to set people up to feel and think in the right way. Yeah, uh, I, I think you're absolutely correct there. There's all of the things you've mentioned that come that are at least the, found later in the in the film are present in in the opening title sequence. And on top of that. And it, the score itself that it, the film starts with isn't that creepy or anything like that, but put against the images and they're, they feel like medieval, like Hieronymus Bosch era depictions of, yeah. of, uh, of medical procedures. There, there's a, an article on the art of the title talking about the title sequence in this movie and how the inspiration from it comes from Renaissance era uh, Italian uh, torture instruments and things like that. So that's so, so yeah so I didn't know any of that and equally I found it slightly disconcerting while watching the title sequence and I think that's exactly the in the same way that uh the opening of uh Batman oh no the Dark Knight uh Christopher Nolan has that single singer singular note that like plays as an like to provide his audience with an eerie undertone eerie feeling the classic Nolan no yeah. one note <laughs> so yeah and in in this but in this movie it's this title sequence provides an eerie eerie setup to the film 
which then when you open with the the first images of twin boys in 1957 toronto and it's the two twins that are going to be the protagonists of the film and they have they come out of their house and they're talking about sex and if you see two little kids talking about sex usually it's very titillating and very much um talking about sex like by talking around it talking about the edges of sex and more the the image of it rather than the science of the, it the stuff that they could find when their parents wouldn't talk to them about it and they found in their own time yeah somewhere. and and usually in a film yeah the the trope would be to see two kids discussing it like kids would on a playground where they don't have all the information but they have some of it and they kind of get why things are whatever and they're kind of at an age where girls would start to be interesting to them i i they seem like seven, eight, nine, somewhere uh, in yeah, there. Yeah, I kind of got like a, a that sort of range. Yeah, I think for age wise, I there's a lot that I think we can talk about with that opening scene, and I did want to get into that a little bit more with the story part. Sure. Um, I just wanted to mention. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to mention that you were saying it it provides context and backstory. But what I thought was really interesting is that while it shows you that scene, it doesn't give you any context outside of that scene. You don't see there the you never see the family of these two kids. You like, for all I know, they could be orphans or they could be foster children. They could, they have a, they have British accents at seven years old in Toronto, Canada. Why we don't, we don't. So then you start as a film, or at least as a f- viewer, me, when I was watching this for the first time, I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Cause I knew Jeremy Irons was going to play this part. And I was like, Oh, they just wanted Jeremy Irons to be able to do his British accent. So they it made, sounds posh. And they let these smart. Kid, they let these kids do the British accent, but then they don't explain why two kids growing up in Toronto at eight years old would have a British accent. So then you're left to wonder all those questions. And then okay, are they transient? Maybe their parents were doctors themselves. Maybe so. There's all. The, I just what I guess the whole point of what I'm getting at is that. Um, Cronenberg lets the audience see in my, the stuff I've seen. He lets the audience do a lot of the work, a lot of the fill in the blanks, and he provides you little nuggets of something that could be is the crack in the windshield that'll spider when it gets hit a certain way. And so you're like, and it's all those little things are, are seeds are laid that will inform characters, but also don't tell you everything about the character. Yeah, yeah, and and I think there's going to be a lot to talk about in that vein uh, when we get into the story section. But before we get there, I do want to touch on a few things with Cine first um, because there, there's some things worth mentioning. It did win the Genie for production design, and the costume design got a nod as as uh, best nominate, nominated for best costume is what I mean there. Costume and, design was, I believe, his sister. His uh, Cronenberg's yeah. sister is the head of the wardrobe department, and she died a few years ago, I think, but she was his wardrobe designer. Okay, yeah, yeah. The, I wasn't sure. I saw they had the same last name. I wasn't sure. I believe uh, it's his sister, yeah. Okay, there you go. Um, but uh, the costume design in particular does so much heavy lifting in this movie, and the production design is good. It, it looks good. It, it, there's a few especially really brilliant sets that really fill tone, like the uh, clinical nature of their house and the, their personal spaces was really interesting. It gives you a look into their personalities and how they, how they exist in their space a lot. Uh, but what, what I really wanted to get on was the, the way that they use costuming to 
help kind of differentiate the two people or at the very least when they're not differentiating muddle differences as well and in particular some of the things i noticed that were really interesting was that uh bev the more homebody quiet type person always seems to be not always often seems to be wearing like soft comfy clothes sweaters things like that and a lot more earthy tones browns and tans and um uh more like comely homely sort of feeling attire whereas ellie is a lot more like the style over comfort the really sheer fancy expensive looking suits and like his pajamas in the beginning even are like satin or silk or something like they're not they look like they're made to be good looking rather than comfortable um but by setting that up that way in the beginning in the first i don't know several scenes we see a lot of that prominently as the movie goes on and they start to themselves become more one person they they switch each other's clothes around a lot so that ellie is sometimes wearing bev's clothes and vice versa especially when they're trying to obviously trick people about who is who of course but uh, I thought it was really, really well thought out and well crafted how they how they worked those costumes out. Yeah, I can tell in pre production they spent a lot of time really digesting who these characters were and how they were going to represent them as uh, separate but similar entities on film, especially that it's one actor playing both parts. Um, you're right. I think the costume design did a lot of work. I think the camera work did some of the work as well. Oh, for sure. And then Jeremy Irons himself. Jer- Jeremy Irons a, is a machine in this. Yeah. I, I don't know, I, like, the amount of technical skill required to do the job that he did in this movie is just astounding. I have a, like, there are actors that I have a strong dislike for without having a reason, or having a reason, but it not being a good one. Um, Jeremy Irons was, like, the bad guy in a lot of the first things i ever saw him in including the lion king he's the yeah, voice he's of scar. scar yeah so jeremy iron's voice was a, is like a bad guy voice and he always plays this like arrogant or he seems to always play like an air like jeremy irons fits the elliot character in my head more than the bev character um with what other things i had seen him do prior to this i mean i've now seen well a lot more in his career and I, i've seen thing uh, a lot more th- and he's a great actor don't get me wrong but there's a few actors out there that i just have a going into the movie i'm like i'm gonna dislike this character so then when they win me around <laughs> <laughs> it's especially well wonderful. i'm like wow they nailed it they really killed it because for to, for him to have make me make me forget that i don't like him and then start to really appreciate his acting and then really appreciate his acting by all said and done. Yeah, he, it was a masterful performance. Other than The Lion King, I think this is the first movie I've seen him in. I think it's the first movie I watched with his face in it, potentially. I I could be wrong. Uh, it's possible that I'm forgetting slash missing something and didn't uh, necessarily know that it was him when I saw it. But like I remember seeing this first and thinking how fantastic his performance was and therefore carrying that forward and always being a big fan of his work. But uh, to the point of camera work as well, there's, um, I mean, we, we can't talk about this movie without talking about the, the mo- uh, motion control camera work the twinning in it. Um, primarily because of how well done it is, but also it's at the time that this movie was made, it was the only, there was only one motion controlled camera 
computer device in the entirety of North America. It was one of the first instances where it was getting used. It was extremely new technology. And uh, the way that they crafted and constructed it and, and used it was very masterful and would have required a ton of attention and focus and intelligence to make it come together properly. And by like, I've done only a few films in real life um worked on them that had a like a a twinning type thing or or any sort of motion capture or a motion control unit on the on the camera and it is apparently leaps and bounds easier to do now than it used to be except i it's still hard to do now (laughs) it's a difficult process it's a really difficult process for everybody because the the blocking has to be prepared in such a way that it works in all shots the actor has to keep the same pace and the same uh type of energy levels and and they have to perform ascent well he's got to perform to himself but to somebody else who's going to be him um and then there's just a lot of things that have to be thought of and prepared for uh one of the interesting things uh, obviously about this is that this is a film era so when they did this they didn't have digital or or any kind of like instant feedback so the their process for making it i don't know if you look this up or not but it's interesting and worth talking about uh is that they essentially they would shoot both of them they would get these rushes where they would uh get each shot and they would comp them together and then they had a monitor where they could adjust where the comp was on the two shots as the actors were moving around so they could kind of like balance the frame out and then the next day they would have rushes with it roughly put together so they could make sure they had it before they moved on all in analog where they're watching like film to monitor projection essentially yeah well like that that's what i just wanted to add to that was is for those listeners that don't know so yeah the nowadays we have a monitor that's hooked up to a live feed so the directors and producers and everybody can see what's being captured at any given moment by the what whichever camera they want and then, but back then, eventually there was taps and things, but but uh, you couldn't play back anything. Nowadays, as well, it's a video file on a on an on an SD card or a HD card or whatever, and so now they can play back anything. Then you couldn't play back; you would have to uh, the film would have to get loaded or unloaded rather, and then into film canisters, then shipped to a local place that did it uh if this is toronto they would have been close to places that did it and then and then yeah and then the next day they would get a not the best quality but a decent quality version of what they see shot the previous day as a print they and that's how they would view this and they would all have to take a break from whatever they're shooting in the middle of the day and get to somewhere that it would have a projection like a projectionist a projector and and a screen to watch these dailies then come back to so it's a, it's an arduous process that is insane that and th- this was done on every mo- like on every movie there was a 3 hour day point in the middle of the day where the creative team would leave to go watch what they did the previous day and then come back. A huge, a huge process. Um, and and the the end product is so seamless in this. I, I like I I was I mean I, maybe there's moments that you can kind of see through it, but for the most part, watching through, I had I I didn't even notice at all any kind of of um, discrepancy, which is I guess the whole point in the technology. The '80s was a really weird time for filmmaking because there is some. Um, terrible special effects <laughs> films made like absolutely terrible 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 stuff 
Um, but it clearly was just about the effort and maybe the maybe the budget, but it was clearly about the effort because there are movies. This came out uh, in 88, and I mean, but we've already had um, Zemeckis and them doing the Back to the Future movies with combining, like there was there's uh, digital effects stuff in that, and also uh, The Abyss and Terminator oh, 2 Abyss. and all those, like... So James Cameron's out here pioneering the science of filmmaking. So yeah, so that if you really cared about it and really did put the effort in, you got these seamless, beautiful effects that still hold up today. You watch this movie like, well, I watched it for the first time, and you know, if if I didn't know who Jeremy Irons was, you could have convinced me that there was an actor, two actors playing this in this movie and and i think to the effort thing that's a really interesting and and probably accurate point of like how much time and effort are you willing to put into something uh because the editor talks about how like even months before they went to camera they were doing tests on this and prepping and making sure that it was gonna work uh on the day and he was talking about how jeremy irons came into those with just these perfectly crafted two characters in his head already where he knew exactly who both of the people were he knew exactly how he wanted to play both of them and so when they got into these like camera tests they were already talking about like the performance between the two of them and and being able to tell that you'd be able to tell or not tell them apart depending on scenarios there's just so much time and work in pre-production to make sure that it came together well, and some interesting things he also pointed out was that he he kind of made it an astute point between British actors and American actors being the from like traditionally American actors play things from the feeling, so from from within to out, and British actors play it from the the manifestations and the traits to to the inside. So you start with the wardrobe and ticks and little affectations, and then you work your way in. And Jeremy Irons himself, though, said that the I think it's on the IMDb trivia, but also that was brought up in interviews and things was that he played Ellie, the more confident, quote unquote, and more personable twin. He played him on his heels. And then when he stand with his posture, when he stood for in as Bev, the more creative and um, I guess shy, shy, but also charismatic. But also the one that maybe is more emotionally astute, more earnest, yeah, perhaps. Um, he played him on his on the balls of his feet, and so he yeah, was a little yeah. bit more anxious. And then Cronenberg uh, points out that it wasn't it wasn't just with that; it was that he was able to play these whole energies that Cronenberg was able to start noticing that one's jaw when when sitting with a relaxed face, one of one of the twins' jaws hung lower than the other one because that's how he brilliant he was in the way he was holding himself was every time he held himself in the same way that it that their jaws and faces started to manipulate slightly differently that Cronenberg on set could tell he was doing that and to the point that when they're trying to deceive people and one character is playing the other brother, um, Jeremy Irons mentions that he... He was still doing the external traits of the brother that it was supposed to be the one being represented, but then internally was still playing with the same energy and emotion of the other brother so that to the audience, something he was hoping would feel slightly incorrect, but that it mainly looked correct. And I thought that was, it's that type of work that we're discussing this, this minute detail that they were analyzing the characters and therefore the story with that, um, 
plays to the overall mastery of of in this film. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think that the the twinning and the motion control would have come across nearly so well if the performance in front of it had not been so like to the T prepared uh, between because having to think about all of those things and then also having to come into these motion control scenes and remembering both how you as one character move and talk and perform and then hold that in your head and then come over to the other side and know that and know what you're going to do as this character and pace yourself and like there's just so many moving parts that i it would be they did have a body double in the same way orphan black um tatiana maslani had a i forget her name but she references her all the time in interviews and she's like she is her you never saw her face but she did a ton of the work and the same thing is jeremy irons would play which essentially in rehearsals would play both parts and one of the and this this off-camera actor would study whichever one or both of them probably and then would try to mimic that same motion and attitude and everything when he was because he was doing the other side of the dialogue until they shot the other side. And then, so he had to give him the same energy and, and everything. And so very interesting. And Jeremy Iron said that when he's in scenes, and this goes to me thinking he's an arrogant <laughs> guy. He said that, um, yeah, when he's in scenes, often when he's working across from another actor, he when he's watching their performance in the scene, which is already bad to what I've been told about acting, you shouldn't be watching, you should be listening. But anyway is that he uh he's often in his head going well they should be doing it this way and they apparently and he's like he in his head he's like well no if they walked over there with the blocking he's like maybe i should be a director he said in this interview but he, he's constantly so he said with this it was kind of fun he knows what other people should do but not himself that, which is a weird yeah which yeah, is yeah. yeah and then but i found it very interesting that he in this he found it comforting because when he was watching this stand in the the shooting doubles performance he he was going okay well when i do it i'm going to do it this way instead of that way and so he was like editing it <laughs> in it, or not editing it but he was editing his performance and f- for what he was going to do on the reverse while performing and so i mean all the better to him that he was able to hold all that within his brain and look engaged on yeah, camera yeah yeah an impressive feat overall <laughs> so the only other thing i had to say in regards to cine was a small comment on color. I mean, overall, the the cinematography and the lighting is is good in this movie. Overall, there's a lot of good contrast. I really like what they do with shadows in a lot of places, covering people's faces, um, particularly Elliot. Elliot has a lot of really intimidating villainy shadows on his face sometimes that I thought looked really nice. Um, but I think the thing that they did that I found most interesting was the the way that they sort of toned different spaces and i uh, with color is where i was getting to so that like uh all of the hospital and clinic spaces had a really really blue um both set deck and production design of it was quite blue but also the lighting and the color was quite blue um and equally a lot of the mantle twins housing scenes are in a, a lot more of a blue spectrum and kind of connect all of those pieces together with like this very clinical, cold kind of emotionless sort of atmosphere. Whereas with um, Claire's character at her place, and whenever it seems when 
whenever Bev is with her. The color palette is much more warm. The set deck and there's a lot more yellows and browns and reds and sort of warm colors. And it, and it was subtle. It wasn't overpowering or distracting, but it was enough that you felt more comfortable in the spaces with her than you did in the spaces with them. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, I think that is, it goes to everything. It goes to themes and it goes to these characters and goes to everything that these are cold clinical people and they, you know, they don't think of the world in a spectrum of emotion. They think of it as like, uh, kind of in, in a scientific method in a very calculated cold way. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought that was really well thought out. Uh, but I didn't have a lot else to add to the cine on that. I think there's, uh, it's a good time to maybe move to some discussion of themes and story. If Absolutely. Ready for it. Um, I would propose, first I have a question for you, um, which is I wanted to to hear what your thoughts about the main conflict and struggle in this movie are. Um, because to me... Uh, one of the things I found really interesting is that w- when when you come into a movie about twins, I, I feel like there's an expectation that you you imagine them to be sort of like together on the same side of things. They're like may- they're a team, and sure, maybe they have their uh, fights or whatever. But there's you 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 come in maybe expecting like a separate antagonist. But I felt like this movie pretty clearly sets up. Ellie as an antagonist and Bev as a protagonist and centers the conflict around the two of them and how they're interacting. Uh, do you agree with that? Or, um, I would from like, I guess from a literary point of view, I, I would, I would agree, but I think that both of them are flawed characters. I, to me, the, the struggle is is the love triangle between the three characters, um, the twins, and then Claire, and uh, 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 so that's where the major conflict comes. But then it comes from the interpersonal dam- dynamics between the three different characters within that triangle relationship, and then it's about, uh, I guess, kind of inter- those interpersonal relationships, and then how they divide. And then what division means and what separation means. And then I guess kind of love the and the perversion of it and kind of how we all reclamate ourselves with love and our identity and how love plays into that identity. And that's not really the answer to your question at all. But it's what I've been thinking about this movie. Right, sure, fair. And and it kind of answers the question in, in a sense. And and I'm I guess I'm not surprised. I kind of thought coming into this that we may have some different perspectives on how we we approach the story. Uh, so that leads me to my next thought, which is I wanted to talk a little bit about the the what we think the, of the th- central theme of the thing. Um, because I spent a lot of my time, watching this movie, thinking about it in terms of this sense of um, of struggle for individualism and a, and a struggle for an individual identity. And that uh, in because I read it as the protagonist and antagonist in that way, I read a lot of the, the theme and, and discussion around that to be about 
trying to find and create your own individual um, control and it became this big struggle for control between the two people versus it being um, well I guess the follow-up would be uh, what you kind of went with with themes when you watched it well no I mean identity I think is is the major theme of this movie and then everything else splits off from that but including like love and relationships and and um, everything else there's gender identity things that are like conversations people are having now but this is 1988 so i it, right down to the fact that even though uh beverly has a more traditional woman's name or by modern standards a traditional woman's name and then elliot has the masculine name and 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 the masculine one is the is the confident uh, gregarious front man and the effeminate one is the more homebody homemaker personality um is is kind of a weird like there's a gender identity thing there but then equally elliot prefers with his brother to go by the nickname ellie which is then an effeminate nickname of elliot um which i found like I, these i'm just saying things that it came to mind when watching this because like i said earlier i haven't formed my thoughts haven't formed perfectly on <laughs> this um but it, it comes down to identity a lot and then who you and and this twins identity thing is a, i think was is somewhat explored and then the the um the nature of the codependent relationship of twins which then leads kind of to a codependent uh physical relationship with a woman for both characters later but mainly for the bev character and then and i think the movie the i think the movie does a really cool trick which is they spend the first act making the audience think that Beverly is the weak, sickly character and the, the one who needs is reliant on the Elliot character and the Elliot character is the standalone strong one who might even have a better life, better chance without his brother um, being an, a bit of an anchor for him. But what we discover is that it, it's in fact reversed to the point that Claire says it to uh, to Bev when they're having a conversation Bev says something about how he's refers to himself more as a weak link of the two. And Claire says to him, I think you've got that backwards. And, um, or I think you've both got that backwards or something is how she says it. And so she kind of sees the truth within them that they don't yet see themselves. And to the point that I think they're both insecure. I think they both at the start of the film, they both feel like if they were one body, one person, and they go to great lengths to talk about how they are the same person because I think they both see failings in themselves that they see successes in the other one. So the the homebody one wishes he could be the personable gregarious one and the gregarious one wishes that he had the ability, like the, the concentration and ability to study and, and do all the, the research work that his other brother's doing. So both of them feel like they need the other one. And that doesn't come across at the start of the movie. It feels very one way. And I feel like as the movie goes, it switches to the other s side of that uh, equation. Seesaw. That, that, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I thought that the movie did a really interesting, a lot of really interesting work with that dynamic. Because you're right. I think that from the beginning, there's this semblance of like codependence, but also 
independent codependence where like they're both that's a weird way to say it but they're both like defined characters where you know you see very clearly in the beginning one is one way and the other is the other way and they both live in their own realms and do their own things and and they rely on each other to fill in the gaps where the other one is lacking and I mean, at first, it kind of feels like a bit of a healthy relationship in some ways to a point. I, I, like, it's never particularly healthy, but it doesn't, it doesn't start off coming across as, um, as bad as it gets, I guess. Uh, it feels a little bit more like they are, they are cooperating and, and amicably sort of, you know, finding a balance in their life in some way maybe healthy relationships the wrong way to say that i've already backtracking on that but the 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 point i was trying to get to is that i think that as the movie goes on i was following this weird uh sense that they became more and more the same person the further along the movie went and that rather than the roles fully reversing i kind of felt like there was this middle ground that they met at um, where they became almost indistinct. Um, the the crossovers between the audience being able to tell who was who in different scenes got less and less. Like it was more confusion as the movie went on. I felt with who was doing what when they were in individual moments, and so much so that you get to that climax, and the they are almost represent like they are represented as being conjoined like the whole big climax right is that they have to separate themselves and and it i i felt like there's this weird sort of flow from completely individual and separate to like realizing some sort of strange connection and merging i don't know it, it got really so i i think what we're both talking about is essentially it is that like the the whole identity thing is very interesting in this and i would agree in some ways that they start as two separate entities um but i feel like they're presented as two perfectly fitting puzzle pieces and then as the movie goes on i feel like those puzzle pieces fit less and less well together but it's as if someone starts to jam them together and so then what ha what's happening is like the cardboard is splitting and there's uh, maybe some pieces ripping off and and as you're jamming them together, but then it's kind of making this an image. It might not be perfect and the lines might not all line up, but it's making a new image, a new something. It, it's creating something new that isn't quite the two separate pieces. It's all one piece together. And uh, I, uh, to that conjoined idea that you're talking about, but I have I had some other ideas in there as well about um, them being the because they're these clinical um, cold personalities and that they look at the like it they don't they they're very they have a very misogynistic worldview um, yep. to start certainly um, this like uh, okay healthy relationship at the start it, it is right away presented that they share women which i think is a very weirdly unhealthy thing i, I guess i guess i i would rephrase the uh, okay healthy relationship with uh some sort of equilibrium they're in balance sure and um and and again i i, I it feels a little like 
it in a yin yang situation of balance it, they do feel somewhat balanced to start out i guess is is in the same thing we're we're saying the same thing the puzzle pieces that fit together they're two different things but they go together and 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 like i said they seem to form one perfect person like if you had the book the bookworm who was gregarious and outgoing so they he, they could both write the paper but do the research for that paper um you're making the one perfect do doctor who would probably be far too arrogant for anybody to stand uh but um <laughs> so i guess the one of the big things that i thought i saw in it was that to me so beverly's character gets involved with this actress and then it's uh so then the the erotic sex scene where uh so beverly ties her up with tubes after getting like notes on how to do that from his brother over <laughs> dinner which is a really weird scene that we don't see but is a loot like but also cut in such a way that at first you don't know which twin it is that's doing it which yeah i, thought was really I in fact i had it was only on my second viewing that i definitely clarified where because i at the first time i watched it i thought that i thought that was elliot but then i thought the rest was beverly but in fact the first time elliot comes in like elliot has major control issues so he come when he then spends his next night with with Claire, it's when he's getting uh, he finds out she's taking pills and then he decides I'm going to be the one that prescribes them for you. So like as if he's taking control of that. You need me now. I am the one who is providing you with the thing that you want. Yeah. And to to the point that he tells his brother in like a cold like that, it, like he describes it as a cold calculating exchange. She wants pills because she's a junkie and we can provide her that. So she'll keep coming to us as long as this. But the experience he's had uh, after that uh, erotic scene we see is that they have that really emotional se sequence where she, I mean, it's insane. <laughs> it's really unhealthy, uh, in my opinion, and insane, because in her order of sequence, that day she essentially finds out she's barren, and then they they have uh, like a like a t tie her up with uh, a uh, medical gear sex uh, after she risk, says she risque needs to be sex, yeah. And then at the end, then she describes herself as like an open wound and, and exposed. And and she says that she's not a complete woman. She's just a girl. She says all of this stuff, which is which is the fears and the heartbreaking part of of being uh, having difficulty conceiving that it, that um, we talked about a bit in the Children of Men episode and things like that. But it's 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 this whole it is a major pro like major significant problem that until very recently hadn't been discussed a lot in media so again another shocking thing to find in in, in this 80s, in yeah. the 80s in a movie is this discussion of how this woman doesn't feel whole doesn't feel complete and then she has this weird like in that moment she expresses it and he feels a real comfort to her bev and it to me that that's one of the first big switches in the movie where bev starts to feel slightly more codependent on her and their relationship feels slightly unhealthy to me. And it feels like a kind of a mother son relationship. Like it feels like he's filling that need of that child she wants to rear, but can't. And she feels some or fills some weird 
independence from his brother, but also something that's just his and, has, and Elliot has no control over. Yeah, and but again, again, they they talk the way they in the early part of this film, the way they talk about women going right down to the the starting scene where they're uh, they're the little boys talking about how um, women like we have sex because we have women have to internalize or humans we don't have live to, in the water so they have therefore. to internalize the water <laughs> and it's it is and when you look at it you're like oh that yeah of course that I, I think i think one of the things that made makes me so uncomfortable about this movie every time i watch it and one of the things that makes it so difficult to watch and i think one of the things that comes about the closest reason that i can call it anything involving a thriller or a horror aspect is that it involves I, I don't think there's a single main character in this movie who isn't psychologically damaged broken or somehow or other seeking something in an unhealthy way and it's just like so many scenes on top of each other of people doing things that you just you know they shouldn't be doing and that isn't a healthy way to be doing things and with attitudes that they shouldn't be having and you want to root for them because they're overall they're good people who are just trying to figure out how to do life but like the whole time you're just like don't don't do this this way why are you what are you doing well right down to the fourth character but the third actor that is probably that i well is the third actor i referenced in the opening but it's um Carrie the girlfriend of Elliot the redhead she um she's probably the most the fourth most populous as far as lines and stuff as a, a, a in this film as as a character and even she does there's that weird sexual tension with her and Bev where she he's freaking out and putting water on his face and she comes with the with her uh, her like dressing gown left open so we can see some of her private parts and stuff. And, and, and then later there's a whole scene where Elliot and Carrie try to include right before he overdoses, uh, try to include Not overdoses. It's a, it's a withdrawal thing, I think, but yeah. Uh, but also too, I think that, um, and, and this goes a little bit to the idea that, uh, Cronenberg has been really good in his films, especially in this one of, of, not telling you things but showing you things and letting you figure it out for yourself in that in that instance there's that moment where uh, El- uh, uh bev is on the patio and and collapses and elliot stands there and he's like oh he's collapsed and he's seems like frozen he doesn't know what to do so carrie goes out and she's trying to like give him breathing and whatever and then he does the whole oh no he's my brother don't touch him and he runs out and pushes her out of the way and there's this short subtle little shot where it cuts to her, I mean, it's not really that subtle, but it's short, where she, like, sits back and she watches Elliot and the passion and the care and the uh, uh, importance and the, I, I essentially love that this man is is exhibiting for his brother. And she has this look in her face, and it took me two or three watches to see it, but I feel like there's this moment of recognition in her eyes where she knows that she's in a relationship where she will never be the most important one because forever and always Elliot cares primarily about his twin, and that is like where all of his attention goes. And that it seems like this recognition that the relationship he's in, she's in is not the honest and, and connective relationship that she 
was hoping it would be. So, uh, the, like the read of love that I thought this movie provides for the viewer is that uh, love is a zero sum game that everybody only has so much love and attention. And so if a new person enters somebody else's life, it's really detrimental to your relationship with that person and that you must stop it at all. Co- that That's like the weird, gross kind of reading that I felt like this movie kept kind of indicating about what love and relationships are. I, I think maybe that the characters think that, or at least Elliot and Bev feel that way. Well, it is a torn, it's a weird... It is a thing, though, that I like. I've experienced in life as well, but it's it's a it's a maturing thing that you just eventually start to deal with. But there's that point in everybody's life, I think, where you know. So when you're teenagers, every you know, people are coupled up and stuff. But it, that's not that bad because you all group hang and you all go places and do things together and whatever. But then as you age and people start to couple off and it becomes um, marriages and and more serious relationships uh individual fan like new pods start to form right and everybody becomes their own circles and then you're only getting together for major events and weddings and funerals and 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 or like a you know a girl's night here or a guy's night there or whatever where you're seeing these old friends but you're never ha- you never have that relationship with that friend group that you uh, that you had when you were like younger and more carefree and life there is are priorities and other things yeah. that get in the way and it's and... and it's not it's not that it's worse it's just that it's different right it's not you just don't have the same your best friends i mean the lucky few that have best friends from high school or junior high or elementary right through the rest of their life i mean um kudos to you uh but i that's not been my experience in life and and it's and while you know i remain friendly with people i was friends with in the past when it's a little bit out of sight out of mind and different things like that and so it it does become a bit of a zero sum thing it does become a bit of a like if i'm with this person and we're serious i'm going to see these friends less and our relationship will suffer for it. It's just how things work. There's but then, only so many hours in a day, I suppose. Yeah, and 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 so that's all normal and fine and healthy, and and it's okay to have that. But there is a certain trauma to it, and it does get expressed. Like it's what a lot of coming of age movies are about, right? It's it's there's two little codependent friend like young guys that are friends together, and then a girl gets introduced, and then it's jealousy and blah blah, blah and then. And it's what those movies are about, and that or, in many or a ways, moving away scenario where one person is following their dreams and what they want to do with their life, and and, and the other person takes feels, them away. and the other, but the other person feels resentful usually in those films because they're being they feel left behind and everything. When it's it's not that it's they're going to do their thing, you're able to now do your thing and whatever, and but yeah, this movie presents a very zero sum love type of thing where all the and all the characters are jealous of the other characters for taking time that they have with the other characters, if no, you know what I mean. I, I think that's true. And I think that that wraps around to the uh, one big other thing I wanted to talk about with theme before we get a little bit more into uh, the nitty gritty of the, of the movie itself, um, which is to kind of wrap back around to the idea of um, the competition between Bev and Elliot and, specifically in regards to control um i have friends in my life two sets of twins who i have been friends with in my life one of them i've known since they were born the other one i've known since university one of them is a pair of twin girls the other one's a pair of twin boys um 
and from everything I've heard and seen from both of them, uh, a big part of being a twin and growing up as a twin is uh, trying to figure out how to be your own person. But there's a competition when you're younger of like this idea of better twins and whatever. And there's a lot of pressure put on them because certain twins might be the favorite or or might be talked about in more and more excited positive lights in certain scenarios and it it can create this sort of difficult relationship where you're trying to be your own person but you're also kind of competing with your other twin to to be better or more important in some ways or or valued equally anyways um and i think that that's something that is really kind of gone into a lot in this movie is this idea that Elliot in my head has a lot of control he has uh this sort of privileged situation where he's the he's the face he gets a lot of the the glory and he gets a lot of the the uh uh, I guess promotions in life you know he gets his hospital um, teaching thing that's like a kind of an upgrade that takes him away from the quote-unquote dirty work of being in surgery and being in the clinic and things Um, and he gets a lot of the sort of attention and Beverly's the one who's quiet and out of the way but there becomes this kind of conflict where Elliot or Beverly's trying to regain that sense of control and place himself in a position of higher not necessarily power but but there's a a power dynamic and a control dynamic between them that i found really interesting i think there's a major control dynamic and that might yeah there might be a power thing mixed in there but it um but i think that like um part of it is that that drunken speech that i referenced earlier that bev comes in and gives he makes reference to the fact that he gets all these women but i i'm the one who like I'm the one who takes care of them all kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And like, so he's even there, he's the one who must have the emotional meetings and the dates and stuff. And then his brother gets to swoop in and, and have the fun times with them and that kind of thing, which I, I don't know if it necessarily works like that, but it seems as if he does, he deals with the emotional baggage of these women. Well, his brother gets to just to have the fun nights with them. And he also gets to have some fun nights as a result, which again is really twisted. Um, but it, the other thing I, I thought, I, um, as far as the control, uh, is, is, and it go, but I think, and it goes to jealousy a little bit, but I think it's more about control is when, when Claire rejects Ellie completely in favor of Bev, I think, I think that fundamentally, again, talking about identity too, is that fundamentally attacks Elliot's identity. Elliot's the one that you're supposed to like. He's the face. He's the he's the lovable one. He's the gregarious one. He's the one everyone ta- wants to meet and talk to. And so the fact that I think it really like it goes like it it starts his identity crisis in the movie. I think Bev starts earlier. Like I said, I, th- I think Bev starts around that se- that scene when he ties her up. But I um I think this is that's the beginning of his is when she identifies like it's when she hears that they're twins then gets them both to the restaurant and then says oh you're the nice one and you're the shit and he he kind of take i think that's why he takes that weird stance in the restaurant too elliot and like laughs when she leaves before he notices his brother crying 
and that kind of thing. I think it's about, it's not, it is control, but it's, it's, it's about identity. It's about that. She's, she's attacked what the part, like the, the thing he's supposed to be the brother, the good brother at. And that's what I like. So I don't know. It's jealousy in a way, but it's not that. I think it is about control. It's about identity. It's about who, who he thinks he is. Yeah. And, and she says it, or they say it at the beginning because Claire asks if, if Elliot's jealous of Bev and Bev's like, no, no, we're not like that. But, um, there's that, like you said, that moment where Elliot or Beverly seems to be the one who gets, um, uh, start but and i read it more in the sense of elliot's control over beverly where bev is now becoming free to follow his own path and have this relationship that elliot's not a part of and that and elliot has then lost some semblance of control and connection over this twin that is such a big part of him um and because of the way i read that and this is part of that thing about uh uh Cronenberg's like leaving things open deal is that there's when uh Bev comes to his office Elliot's office and is like oh she cheated on me um they have like oh it's not really love if if it makes you feel this way and then they kind of hug it out or whatever he's like I was hiding from the wrong person and again there's this kind of like cut to a shot where it's them holding each other and Elliot kind of looks away with this like smug grin on his face like I've won I've got control back he's back in my realm and she's gone and and he's regained his like position of control it it felt to me yeah and and i i think the thing is i like what we were saying with with cronenberg being really subtle is i think it, it's it's all these things i think that's the mm-hmm. point i think he's yeah, yeah. all of this is in there um because we're reading it on purpose because it's there on purpose because that's he's an on purpose type of director yeah yeah uh and the last wrap around on that thought and and this this came from me hearing him talk about how he views his own movies and then thinking about the movie as from his perspective but he talks about horror through metaphor um and part of this idea of control led me on this on this idea of this metaphor or analogy to this fight for control between twins that can both be taken in a a childhood and adult life in the world but also there's this this almost this metaphor of um in a way of like a representation of of twins almost in utero competing there's a there's a a phenomenon about where apparently about 30 percent of of multiples pregnancies at least one of the multiples gets absorbed by the other one because they're competing over not necessarily actively obviously but like they end up competing and one sometimes gains control and i thought there was a really interesting read on like uh like them being a meta an analogy or a metaphor for twins in a womb sort of balancing and competing too yeah they're they're definitely and the 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 feeling of the one twin absorbing the other twin go back goes back and forth i think between depending on kind of who which twin we're showing at the moment um because when Bev is the first one we see fall apart completely in the movie and it's Elliot who gets absorbed into that by putting it be by putting himself on the same drug regiment as his brother as he's trying to get him clean it's off a of medical it. fact that whatever is in his blood is in my blood as he puts the pill in yeah. his mouth but that's how codependent he is or whatever yeah, yeah. um but I I kind of also had this thing so I was because I was seeing them see women's bodies as objects more than more than 
women more than independent individuals. Yeah. Uh, and then, and, but they also had this very clinical, like perfect form thing. There's that, uh, I mean, they, it makes reference. A lot of the things I read about this make reference to this one line, but uh, I think it's Bev or maybe it's Elliot. I forget now, but one of them makes reference to there should be beauty pageants for the interior That's of, Elliot. of the body. Elliot's and, the one who talks about that. And that, and how, so they have these idea of these perfect forms and everything in their head. And then, and it's, um, and, and I think again, going to identity that, that are these worldviews that we hold go, are part of our identity, create our identity. And then the prescription drug use starts to happen, especially for Bev. And so for the first time in his life, it feels like because he drinks a bit throughout the movie, but, and we see him get drunk that one time, but for the most part, he seems far less like using vices and using these other things. Um, so maybe for the first time in his life, he's, he's altering his mind and brain chemistry and everything using these drugs and, you know, drugs are used to, uh, kind of amplify or it, as in this case to subdue your feelings and, and so you take, you take medication to heal something, to ail something, to, to lessen something. And so he starts taking them when the first time he's getting involved in a relationship. So I don't, I don't know if he's taking it in like as an antidote to the love he's starting to feel from somebody different, or if he's taking it to heal the wound that he's creating between him and his brother, but he's taking these drugs, uh, to like, to dull him in some, for some reason, heal some kind of pain or yeah. problem. So there's, so he realizes this, like this relationship is causing him problems and he's so he's taking these drugs to solve this problem for himself he's self-medicating right yeah yeah and but then oh i can't sleep i'll just take the the sleeping pills and then i i'm too sleepy i'll just take something to wake me up but then what does this do what like what does this do this really ends up uh effing with how he sees the world and these perfect forms and everything start getting perverted and what and the and this is this playing as like a large greek tragedy well what happens when like the horror is horror is somewhat the opposite of expectation in the same way comedy is. That's why they play so well together and they follow the same rules almost to a T yeah, in the same way. And, it's just and, a little different. And the horrifying uh, opposite of perfect is, is mutilated or imbalanced or, or something. Mutated. Exactly. So it's, it's the, these things. So as his worldview begins to crumble and as these perfect forms and these, these clinical sterile objects become something that he like cares about and thinks about and wants to be with or whatever. And while he starts taking all these drugs and everything starts getting perverted, he then starts seeing all these women coming in that have probably the perfect uh, genitalia and organ setup, but he starts seeing it as incorrect and perverted and wrong uh, to the point that he later uses the, the wrong tool. Well, the tool that they make special mention in the college years scene that this is for cadavers because it's it would be too unpleasant to be used on a live person. And then in the in the climax of the film or in the third act of the film, he then uses it on a live woman. And then when she complains about how obviously uncomfortable this thing must be, he tells her she's incorrect and blah, blah. I, I, I think that. I think that part of that, though, is that the the guy who says it works on cadavers and not real people is meant to be also proven wrong in that I think is why there's that ceremony scene about it. 
where like they're like oh it actually works but it's for like external surgeries and things it's not to be like inserted in the way oh, that okay. it was inserted. well either, either way it was for, like the same oh, the yeah. same purpose it yeah, was yeah. being used incorrectly and 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 then it's it's the fault because of the of, world around him not him or his lack of grip with reality. exactly that's what i'm saying yeah, yeah. yeah it's to the same point yeah yeah 100 percent. i think that that's entirely accurate unless there's anything else you wanted to touch on in that kind of that kind of vein i thought maybe we well could... just quickly to character uh, again um i wanted to point out that claire um the very first time so we see claire the very first time we see her she's with elliot i believe getting an examination although it might be bev because i think bev goes out and tells him it's the actress doesn't care and then elliot's like "Ooh, the actress and he goes in and takes over i'm i'm pretty sure that's how it is and i'm pretty sure that's why she doesn't realize there's twins she thinks it's the same person and then anyways the very next scene is they go to she goes he goes to dinner elliot goes to dinner with claire and her agent ah ah no according to imdb that's her husband which i wanted to ask you about oh i did see that she's listed as somebody's wife on that leo's wife leo is the guy that they're at dinner with who is apparently her husband according to imdb so I don't know what the deal is and if like that whole relationship is, between Bev and Claire is a, an affair anyways. Well, but, but yeah, sure, but I that's cheating to me to like see that on IMDb and then cuz the film didn't tell us that. No, and it entirely changed the way I viewed the movie when I saw that in a way that I wasn't sure I liked. I ra- I rather enjoyed it the way it was rather than questioning the entire relationship that these characters were okay. having. Cuz I thought he was she, that, I thought that was the agent because she's talking to him like an agent. She's and she's saying, "Get me that movie, get me that or miniseries." And then she and talks like, about the Georgia movie, and she's going to meet him about the Georgia but movie. The, but I think the most important thing that comes out of that, and at least for, for on, on on what Elliot observes, is that whole humiliate me thing. And she's yeah. like, "Please humiliate me." Yeah, yeah. So she has some really, she has some big psychosexual. Well, which she even points out, and he says. <laughs> and that's Elliot, and he says aptly identified or whatever. Kind of grins and takes it as like a little bit of humor, but it also has some kind of like yeah. sad sort of dark undertone to it that isn't necessarily... Yeah, and again, I mean, this is a woman who just found out that heartbreaking news that she has the trifecta... She's a tri a triumvirate? No. no. Tri- trifecta? No, I, oh, it- God. All of these words sound wrong, but a, a triple, a triple, a triple U, uh, cervix. Yeah, cervix. Uh, yeah. So, um, so she just found that out, and again, because it was Elliot, he doesn't actually give her the full bad news that she's totally barren and won't be able to have. To the point, she even makes that joking reference, like when Bev, when she then goes back with Bev, because she says to Bev can't I have triplets or something? One baby in each cervix or could, something? Could there be one in each? Yeah. And he's like, no, the exact opposite. You'll never have kids or whatever. Yeah. And then proceeds to sleep with her 10 minutes later or whatever. Yeah, that whole So thing. really messed up. Uh, the the That relationship um, by any like modern, uh, like uh, write-in um, advice column person would t- say that relationship is doomed for failure, I would imagine. Doomed for failure in a very um explosive way too i would imagine yeah um and then i guess finally i i um just with the whole thing theme being identity a little bit to me is is in the final scene when he uh in a drug-induced haze realizes that the only way he's going to be happy is if he eliminates his brother 
and he kills his brother and he cuts out the the weak twin the sickly twin and kills him disembowels him and then in the morning wakes up for some reason can't see his brother in his refuses to look it's the yeah. sense of like if i don't see it it doesn't it isn't and real. uh puts himself together enough to go out and make a phone call to claire and then she says who is this to which he can't answer hangs up the phone then goes back and crawls into the fetal position in his brother his dead brother's lap which again he then moved the body because we saw it splayed out and so he's moved it down onto the floor and put a blanket over the mutilation and then crawls up into the uh to his to his lap in very much reminiscent again of that um same marble statue from the Sistine Chapel of Mary holding the dead body of Jesus. Um, but again, because it's Cronenberg and he's an atheist, I don't know that that's the reference he's making there, uh, though I, I read into that. And again, it could be left ambiguous that he doesn't die in his brother's lap there. He just lays there until the But concept- he doesn't blink and he's not moving or apparently not doesn't seem to be breathing Uh, and because i know the true story the end of the true story to which this this the book twins was written to which this is based a little bit which is two twins found dead in a manhattan apartment of a barbit barbitate barbiturate overdose or withdrawal so one so one had the barbiturates in the system and the other one did not they oh. is what I read, which was like I thought interesting. But they both but died they both died of yeah. and anyway. And so um that was this whole the whole idea of this is he's the clean one in this scenario that then died but he's not. After. But but that's also interesting. I did want to talk to you specifically about what you thought about the way that it ends because um the first time I watched it I didn't really understand what was happening when he left Claire's house and I I initially read it as a um he gets there they get really high and then in their state of being very high there he almost transposes themselves onto this other story of these twins that they know that were conjoined who said died because one died and the other one died of shock afterwards um and they start calling each other by the names of those twins and things so there's this clear blurring where reality isn't really uh, lining up for them but also he talks about oh you have to these tools which originally he were for like oh working on mutant women but then when claire asks what they're for he says oh they're for separating siamese twins and then is like i have to go it's almost like he's like i need to go kill my brother now but like he seems like he he seems high when he's there because he's no longer in withdrawal which means he's taken the drugs that he's lacking so he's not sober and then oh at claire's i thought the the implication was that he got sober at her house oh see the way the way i i was reading it is he's in withdrawal at his house because he's being forced cold turkey to quit yeah and then he goes to claire's claire goes to the pharmacy and gets a prescription and then he's fine again because now he's taking the drugs and he's no longer in withdrawal from them oh see yeah no and you're probably right there again you've seen this more than i have but yeah so I had him, He ha- there's that great, great scene where he's in the fetal position starting to go through withdrawals where Ellie hasn't started taking the drugs to match him yet, but 
but essentially does in that scene. And he's like, why are you doing this to us? And he has that great line where he's like, I'm not doing it to us, Ellie. I'm just doing it to me. Don't Don't you have your own will? Yeah, yeah. And that's like a major divisive scene between the two. And it's played so beautifully and so subtly between the two. Um, But it's it seems like after that moment, when that's when Ellie falls off the deep end. I mean, he slowly falls off the deep end, but it starts at that moment for him. And but that's almost the start of like getting clean for for Bev. And because then we see, you know, he's going through so much withdrawals, he's puked on himself and then he calls her and he's talking to her about cheat, how she cheated on him. And and she's like, oh, no, I didn't. That's I didn't my, cheat that's on my you. Gay, and you said uh, some weird things yeah, to my, yeah, a- my yeah. agent or assistant or whatever. Secretary, and, I believe. Yeah, scared him off or whatever. Because he did. That's a really weird phone call. Yeah, right. But um, the the whole thing is in that moment, he then decides like as almost it's almost as if by hearing her say, oh, no, that I wasn't cheating on you. It's as if he's think he thinks that back to how his he thinks his brother has poisoned him against this woman he loves, because th- there's that whole she's an actress, uh, she's a flake. This is what she does. Blah blah. blah when yeah, yeah when he yeah. Com- when he comes over, oh, she's ap- got a drug problem. She cheated. Yeah, and of course she cheated on you. That's what she does. She's an actress or whatever. Like so, it's that it's that whole thing. And I think at that moment, to me, his character is saying because his he then calls the landlord to get him to unlock the office door to get him out so that he can go to his, go to Claire's place. And then on the way he throws up in a bush that happens to be right beside the art, uh, (laughs) the art gallery. And then he steals those tools and then he gets to her place. But when he gets there and you're right, she must go out and get a prescription. I need it. Here's the prescription. They'll give it to you. Go to the pharmacy. I thought we did like a time jump of like a few weeks, maybe a month because it was a week. It was. He said he was gone for a week and that was why he was worried because Ellie hadn't called or contacted. Right. And then he goes back and the the office is a mess and he's going through the office somehow doesn't hear the shower till the shower turns on. He hears the sink turn on. He goes to investigate the sink. It's running and nobody's there. He turns the sink because he finds his glasses. Yes. And then the shower oh, turns on, yeah. and then he goes to the shower, and Elliot. So, and and I think that that's a a really interesting read because it 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 lines up really nicely with the way that I kind of wanted to watch it as like the way the story and the arc of character that I l- wanted to follow that works really well with it. But the reality of like the withdrawal and the drugs, I don't think he's sober at the end. Uh, but I think that the like the realization of the brother poisoning him and things like that against her. And the, all of that is, I think, a really astute reading. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what happens. And then he, he's with her. He's happy. And like, again, I was reading it as like, he's cleaned up. He's like got through the worst of the withdrawal. And, but and he, he had a not necessarily a healthy relationship with the drugs. But like when they were happy and together, they were taking them and it was problematic. But the worst of it is when he finds out or when he thinks she's cheating, he goes off the deep end. Well, it's for when she goes away. Uh, well, initially, yeah. yeah, it starts when as soon as she leaves, he's a Which, mess. As soon as I found out that, uh, as soon as I saw that thing on IMDb about her being Leo's wife, I was like, "Oh, is she actually going to do a movie? What is she doing? And like, why oh, is right. she? You know, maybe this like apartment is actually her affair away home, and she's going to see her. I don't know. And it was like it was all this reads that I didn't need in in the confusion I didn't need. But, anyways. Uh, I I think <laughs> that was a tangent, but I, I I think you're right. I think that um, for the most part, he kind of starts to recover, 
but then he goes back and he's like, all right, now I'm the one who's more in control. And now I'm going to try and help you, Elliot, who is uh, in your suit, in the shower, barely conscious. Here's our weekend of we're going to go nuts. And then on Monday, we'll go clean. But in the process, as d- drugs do, they alter the perception of reality. And, and I think that there becomes this in the characters' minds, this strange sort of merging of realities where they don't really necessarily know who and what they are anymore. So the 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 getting high birthday cake scene is really important, and I'm embarrassed to admit I don't remember it well enough to remember everything that was said, and I should have studied it more because that might be when he makes the decision to kill his brother. Because when he goes, I'll get you some cake, and then he says, it's my birthday, or it's our, like, he, he makes, re- and he goes, it's not our birthday, and he goes, yes, it is, yes, it is, and that, because he's already then made, to me, he's already made the decision, I'm going to kill you, therefore I'm reborn, I'll be reborn tonight as a single person in this world, a single identity, to which when he wakes up in the morning, makes that phone call, who is it, he can't say who he is anymore because without his brother he doesn't know who he is and then goes and yeah 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 and goes back to connecting and i also thought there was a really interesting point there where um he uh, elliot asks for ice cream and and bev's like oh we don't have any mommy forgot to buy it there's this there's this and it, it sort of went parallel with the thing i was talking about before about this read of them starting as independent like definable people and slowly merging into less definable, more individual, more single unit. Um, but part of that read that I had too was that they begin the movie as very put together, intelligent uh, adults who are successful in life and have, have out their shit together essentially. Um, and as the movie goes on, they fall apart. But in falling apart, they almost revert to this like childhood kind of state um and that there is kind of what kind of kicked that idea in my head this like mommy forgot to buy it and then he sort of throws a a whiny like i want ice cream like a little kid and it's this sort of sense of like and it's actually i think it like if i saw this in a theater i think it would play for play as a laugh i mean i think it was kind of meant to but i also i also feel like it's it's leaning into that sort of like they're going back to when they were younger and less separate. They're less defined. They're more defined by each other and as a unit, a single unit. Yeah, that that yearn to re-enter the womb, the in utero thing. And, yeah, and like redoing your life and like you said, being reborn as an individual, and then realizing that maybe that that isn't how that works, and that in fact he's just you know yeah it's just the thing i have trouble with character wise is i don't know when beth made the decision to me after the watches i've done through the most solid point i can think well okay so i don't know if he made the decision i know that he's thinking about it when he leaves claire's because he says separating siamese twins and then he has this moment in his face where he's like has this some kind of revelation says i have to go and then she says, oh, he won't let me, won't let you come back. And the response is, how could he stop me? Which to me says that at that point in time, he's decided that his end goal one way or another is he will be back with Claire. He'll be separate from Ellie, whether that means uh, whatever separating the Siamese twins with these strange tools is 
uh, or if he's actually going to kill him. I don't know if he necessarily thinks murder is what's happening at that point. Yeah, I guess that the the how will he stop me line. I didn't. It, it you say that now, and I go, of course it could have meant that. Um, but what I read that as was just like we've shown we're showing that he is now independent and strong. I, I think that it works both ways there, though. And again, going to Cronenberg's layers upon layers of of intrigue. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I um, Because the other thing is, if he made that decision to kill his brother at that point, one of the first things that we see when they're both high, I think they're both high together, is he's like, we have to get you a shot of Barbatol or something before morning so you don't know like he tells him to we got to get you this shot so you don't od more or less yeah they're basically going through their drug plan of like we're gonna get crazy high on this this night and then we'll balance it with this the next morning and this the that, that right and and i guess that mean that could all be play acting or whatever but the fact that you're like it's planning future events and if you're planning on disemboweling him i i i think though and this is maybe just I don't think he ever actually planned on killing him. Right. I think that that's something that happened, but I think that his intention was never murder. I think his intention was finding some sort of way to, by by using this last weekend of like drugs and, and lack loss of reality kind of thing, and coming out the other end, he was going to have some kind of semblance of created separation and I don't know that until he's, even as he's doing it, I don't know that he's necessarily thinking he's intentionally killing him or planning on killing him. Because see, then he gets up the next morning and is like, Ellie, where are you? And then can't look at him because he doesn't oh, want to recognize it. And I think you're right. But it's also like, so the same psychopathy that that urged him to go get those tools made because he needed to just like... Uh, well, to the world's view, mutilate women, but to his view, correct women or whatever. Um, and also insane, the saying those sentences. Well, yeah. Um, but like, because like, so a, 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 and like, we're talking about murder here. So none of this is justifiable, but like to me, <laughs> in my head, a logic, the logic brain part of me that goes, if I want to get rid of this, like, uh, incubus brother that is like sucking all my life force out of me and and killing me um and because because we i can't we can't live separate lives so i need to i need to remove that character from my life um by killing them and then you go and have a weekend where you get wicked high you have all the means and opportunity whilst getting them wicked high to have them OD and die. And you're a doctor, so you know about like levels and stuff you'll need to put in the system. And, and but you instead, also then have a way to to do it without being necessarily cognizant of what you're doing either. Well, and do, and do it in such a way that like, because if you wake up in the morning and instead of him being disemboweled, he's choked on his own vomit and is blue in the face and whatever. Um, like object achieved you have like because you if you're if the police can prove you were there you're being a, that you had a doctor's background you'll have a big problem manslaughter anyways. yeah um but uh, but there's a way to like that gets you out scot-free where and maybe that's not what he wants maybe that's not the purpose of that maybe the purpose is that he needs to do something graphic and horrible and and 
and truly like barbaric in order to like shake him loose of this of this th- anchor he feels is pulling him down but it just seems ins- it's it seems like the same to me then the same insane place he was in when he was high in the middle of the film and lost his license and like dove over a patient to take their to take the their that, anesthetic I their guess. anesthetic so he could have a downer before he operates uh again a great that's another great scene but um that whole like him donning that red surgery robe right before and like oh it just brilliantly shot and well and he performed. plays high really well there in that scene and then mm-hmm. also shout out to that nurse who when he has he brings in the instruments and she first sees them she does like an exaggerated bug-eyed like oh man what are the like these tor- instruments of torture um and they're all like they look like they belong in like alien yeah like some uh oh no what's his name geiger um, uh hr geiger yeah they're very like hr geiger in their design um, yeah. So uh, to me though, I guess that these are the, these are the reason this was why I was scared about doing this podcast is it's like I said, I, uh, my thoughts aren't fully formed on it and I don't have a lot of, uh, I don't know that I'm adding a ton of insight, but it, it like that, that decision and that end of the film is intriguing to me and it will be what brings me back to, to this film in the future. I, I think that that's something that is a part of Cronenberg's filmmaking, though. And we keep going back to this idea of ambiguity and open-endedness and things. And I think that part of what makes this film worth talking about is that there are all of these different reads and all of these different interpretations and that we can sit down and we can talk for an hour and a half about the characters and what they're doing and what they mean and trying to interpret how, how... their this story is is trying to discuss uh psychological and sociological issues um like to that point one of the things that i was thinking about um throughout was that maybe maybe part of the the conclusion where he comes to at the end there is that the realization uh it's almost like in the beginning he doesn't really fully know how codependent he is he being bev yeah yeah sorry so bev doesn't really like they have this sort of equilibrium this balance they've struck where they're both content with their life and at a certain point there's like a an awakening in bev where he realizes that he's in the midst of this thing that he doesn't know how to deal with because he's he doesn't want necessarily to have the the codependence entirely he wants to have some freedom but he also doesn't know how to be free. And so there's this there's this internal struggle. And part of me was thinking, oh, well, maybe maybe part of it is this idea that this this existential crisis that he's going through is just a mental stress that he can't handle and eventually snaps because of this this realization he's had that he can't come to terms with and that the whole the whole conclusion just comes down to him not even knowing how to handle any of what his life is anymore well and there's the the breakup scene has a great reflection of that which is when when elliot says like good riddance or something like all smarmy like and then he looks (laughs) over at he looks over at bev and bev's crying and he's like, oh, Bev, I'm sorry. Like, are you I okay? I didn't realize. I didn't realize, yeah. And then he's, uh, which 
he definitely realized. Oh yeah. Um, but Bev says, uh, like his his response is, I don't know, I don't know, I I just feel something, or I feel like I feel upset. I think he says he's like I like he doesn't really understand. But he, he doesn't understand the emotion that he has, and it's and that like that's why I feel like that scene. Well, a little bit. Like I think the what he's feeling there is like it's love, kind of like love an lost, initiating incident. inciting in, yeah, inciting incident. Yeah. Um, absolutely. But I, I think that I think that seed is planted in that tie-up medical supply tie-up scene um, because. Uh, but it, it is a, it's like it is love, I think. But it's really dangerous to use love with these relationships. I mean. It's it's a dangerous. There's I saw something somewhere about it was being ranked one of the top twenty most dangerous films because it does toy with a lot of really messed up relationships that if you, you know, approach it with the wrong attitude and the wrong the wrong um, um, interpretation, you can get some bad ideas about how love works or is you know absolutely and uh, and. Um... And also, like, there's major incestuous overtones to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Not just like the the um, the sharing of women thing is one thing, but then there is the full like uh, uh, trying to invite him to bed with them thing. And that's, I mean, again, it doesn't mean that they're gonna be they're gonna be doing any acts together in bed. Um, but you're a, it's a very <laughs> it's a slippery slope. Yeah. yeah. To to uh, and and I and I, like. And then again, there's like tons of like Freudian overtones and all through this. And it's, it it is a really complex story. And I'll say that it, it took some digesting of this to under, to under, to see any of that. I I really, when I watched this, I was gripped and I was entertained and it went by quick. Like it's an hour and it's almost two hours, I think. Okay. Yeah. It's like between an hour and a half, two hours. 58 minutes is about the halfway point. Oh, okay. So, so it, um, but it and it's but it's really like it was really interesting in, in that it um it yeah when I finished the movie I, I wasn't like oh I'm super satisfied with that I need to call all my friends and recommend it you were like, engaged I have and been, gripped but also disgusted at the same time right yeah and it was just uh, but it was also because my mind was like almost already occupied with thinking about the movie so I didn't have time to like realize i might have enjoyed it and i don't know if enjoy is the right word either experienced it is maybe the word and then um and i do like i like i like the work i like thinking Uh, this is what i like one of the things me and you both like about films is being able to watch things and then talk about them almost ad nauseum and that's why this podcast exists but it's it's um it's just yeah i just i don't know i don't know how to describe the the pleasure i guess i got out of this movie because yeah, there's yeah. clearly some pleasure it just and then it and then you're uncomfortable because you took you derived pleasure out of this piece of art yeah yeah that, that's a good way to look at it there's there's really only one thing i had left to talk about before we get to a conclusion and th- those were a lot of very uh close to conclusionary thoughts there so i just wanted to interject quickly with one more thing which is that i think um the cronenberg's ability to tell engaging stories and make great characters and believable characters is really strong but i think from like a very um from like a very pared down and just in like pure craft sort of perspective one of the strongest elements 
in this movie is dialogue. And it's not because it's it's amazingly witty or quick or anything like that. Like, I always talk about good dialogue, and I always find myself going to, like, the Aaron Sorkin kind of thing and whatever of, like, you know, that snappy, quick, rhythmic kind of pace to it. Uh, but there is some very brilliant, brilliantly written lines throughout this movie that uh, do a fantastic job of suggesting and showing things without ever actually driving and telling you straight up what it is or giving you all of the information like for well i mentioned that we'd get back to this uh and then we hadn't yet but the opening scene for example uh where the two are walking uh the two kids are walking talking about sex it's this it's a short like i don't know maybe three minutes long four minutes long maybe it's a little longer than that. i think less than that maybe less than that but in the in that short period of time, through simple lines, you learn absolutely everything you need to know about the characters that you're going to be following the rest of the movie. Like, I figured out why sex is, is one of the lines that one of them uses, which right there is like, oh, it's like their view on the world is clinical, it's intellectual, it's academic. They're like eight-year-old kids who think about things like scientists already, and that's like telling you that part. Well, and, and it's not even, and, and cause that, um, <laughs> I'm trying well, to think back to like when I first heard about sex or first understood the concept of sex and I truly, I don't remember, but I do remember like sex ed classes and like talking about sex with my parents and stuff. And, um, uh, the why never really seemed like the question I would ask. No, never. Like, it was always like the, this is what people want to do. <coughs> And you might, and I, maybe I would say, you know, because the why and to make babies or whatever, but like, I think I understood, and maybe, again, maybe it's just it being so prevalent in media, but I'm pretty sure I understood quickly that it was like a making babies and feeling good type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, there's a follow-up where um, uh, they say, the, the line is, uh, they have a, well, they have a kind of sex, but the kind where you wouldn't have to touch each other. And the response to that is, oh, I like the sounds of that. Like, they're they're thinking about it in terms of, again, clinical, but, like, that emotional, social, human bonding part of what having sex is, is completely foreign to them. Yeah. So much so that they prefer the idea of fish in water laying eggs and fertilizing without touching. Yeah, and and again, like you know, if you didn't watch the rest of this movie, you just saw that as a short film. You could, in your head, you you I, you could have the argument whether that is what you've just described, or that is they're just not old enough to find girls interesting yet. So it's girls are icky. I wouldn't. I don't want to touch them to do this thing that we need to do. And, and I I would read it that way if it wasn't preceded by the I know why sex is point either. Right. Uh, yeah. True. And uh, um. And then when they land at the front porch of the uh, uh, Rolanda or something I like that. I can't remember. Uh, anyway, so a young girl and they ask her to come have sex with them in the bathtub. For an experiment. For an experiment. And then she, she says like, F off. Uh, I'm going to tell my dad. And then she says something like, and you don't even know what the F word is, like is. Like you don't even know what fuck is. Yeah. Or something yeah. she says. That you, you, yeah. I, she's like, I bet you don't even know what fuck is. And... I feel like that's a really because they didn't say the word 
no. she said the word and then claims they don't know what the word means but which, also but also it's a good strange. follow-up because they're talking about sex clinically yeah and and of course the the meaning of fuck obviously is like a more a less clinical more sort of like crass and and uh and vulgar way of saying the same thing um so in a way that like juxtaposes sort of like a normal people way of viewing things in a sense with like their way of viewing things because then they walk away and they're like they're so different from us but he's talking about the fish right but the carryover makes you think oh he's talking about themselves or women or women to men yeah uh because that because i read it a bit as the women to men thing uh, like carryover as opposed to carry but then he says oh and but then he continues to talk about yeah it's just a clever way of like absolutely you know like that hook we were talking about last week with and the other thing i've found with this uh with what you're talking about his dialogue is that when i was like reading stuff and doing after i watched this once or well twice and then i was scrubbing back through the timeline of it to like check out scenes and try to hear pieces of dialogue to see if it informed stuff later and all of it does and the other thing is like a ton of things have double meat like the subtext is so rich in scenes when you go back and rewatch them when you then know what's going to happen and and when you better understand the dynamics between all the different characters there's so many like all the scenes with claire are a lot more interesting um because she seems like she has a ton of insight into their relationship um but then in a weird way it doesn't really share it kind of shares it with them or alludes to it she she makes it clear that she understands them better than they they think she does and like she's sort of like i'm in on your secret you're not fooling me yeah but never says it what she understands and the other thing is when she presses bev for the first time like to talk about deeper things and emotional states and and um and like psychoanalysis or whatever he in fact like he gets really abrasive with her he like pushes her feet off of him on the couch they're like cuddling on the couch toe to toe or whatever and then he's and he's like what are you trying to do psychoanalyze me and he like gets really mad at her um as anybody who's really defensive of who they are and and what they are you don't want to do that work you don't want to examine that you don't want to see your flaws yeah yeah so it was a really interesting and the other thing is in that it he accuses her of accusing him of of being gay or something because his name's bev and um and she's kind of teasing like playfully teasing with him about his name See, I it didn't feels get a sense like... that it was playful. I got the sense that she was sort of like she was taking jabs a little bit because of what had just transpired in a sense. Like it it felt like like she was noticing that there was something different and something wasn't right. And yeah. then she was when he quickly diverted and wouldn't talk about it, she's like, all right, well, I'm going to just incite you in another way. Well, yeah, and and she might have been pressing him to see how he reacted because Maybe Elliot's a cooler head with getting teased, whereas someone who's not as socially adept would be, and things like that. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I just what I, to your point, the dialogue is awesome. Fair enough. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut off your thought there and derail you, but I think that um, in summary, it's a really, really solid film that it it gives you a lot to think about in a lot of different ways. 
And I think that you can come back to it quite often, not often, but every time you come back to it, you're going to get more out of it if you if you care to sit down and do the work with it. Well, I guess that goes to uh, to my next question, which would be, is this a rewatchable, revisitable film? Which is hard because I think it's important. I don't think you can sit down and watch it once and understand it and take out of it what it's meant to or what it's trying to say. But also, it's a hard film to watch. Like like we said in the beginning, it's uncomfortable. You, I came into it, and within 20 minutes, I got this sort of like weird, uncomfortable, like sort of hugging myself gut feeling, and it didn't go away for the entire movie. And every time I come back to it, I still kind of feel that. So it makes it hard to rewatch it, but also I think it's necessary. Uh, yeah, so I, um, we talked about a bit off mic about this, and I... I you're you've summed up exactly kind of how i feel about it as well is like um when i watched it i I wasn't i didn't feel great after i finished it and that takes you have to be uh, going ahead and answering a couple questions ahead is you have to be in a certain mood i think when that when that occurs there you go and um and yeah and but i do think this takes more than one watch and so if you're gonna watch this movie as just like oh i'm doing a complete Cronenberg uh, filmography chronologically or whatever um, tick by you'll tick by probably a lot of them but I, I assume most of them will be worth a rewatch and maybe not right away unless you're doing it for the purposes of analysis and then right away watch it you're gonna want to watch it once or twice more um, but if it's something that you're if you're if it's a movie for pleasure um, I don't know that this would be a movie that I would turn back to really quickly and be like, I want to throw that on it. It's not, it's not as bad as the one I always, re- uh, always references Requiem for a dream. Uh, Aronofsky's Requiem for a dream Love that it. I, amazing. that it's an amazing film, but I can't return to it. I just, I don't think I can watch it again. I mean, if we do it on this podcast, I'll watch it, but it's just not, I re- it, re- <laughs> the movie it's a just, hard watch. The, yeah. And in the same way, this movie, yeah, I, I I generally when I'm watching movies, it's a lot of time, a lot usually a lot more for pleasure. And if I want something that is like mentally hard work, and um, I can find those ones that also are pleasurable to watch. Um, so so that's that's all I would say about that. But what about you? As far as as a mood, do you think you need to be in a mood to watch this? Uh, you know what? This is the first time I think uh, since you've joined since we started doing these questions, I guess where I will definitively say yes, you do need to be in a mood for it because you have to be you have to be prepared to experience an hour and a half to two hours of discomfort if if you're the kind of person who gets uncomfortable watching things. I know that you can there's the people out there who can watch stuff like this and separate themselves and not feel discomfort, but but for the most part I think you have to be prepared to feel uncomfortable for two hours and think about why you're uncomfortable and think about what's happening it's it's a movie you have to think about it's a movie you've got to be present and engaged with and it's a movie that personally i wouldn't sit down and watch if i was looking for something to watch for pleasure i would sit down and watch it if i was looking for something to spark my brain and make me think yeah and i think it has enough interesting ideas about identity and and theme and and even gender and gender politics and that kind of thing that like 
if you have a film club or something, this would be an interesting movie to do for if that. If you do of... what we do and talk to people about movies, yeah, this is a good one to recommend to somebody who might want to. You might want to talk about movies with. Yeah, um, but yeah, so uh, but mood wise, um, unless yeah, unless you're wanting to do a little bit of academic work, I feel like this is a hard one to just throw on and enjoy with the friends. Um, but if you've never seen it, I think. Um, I know everything we've said, of course, but I, I would say like, just try to see it, seek it out. Yeah. See, Oh, going to the next <laughs> thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'll answer that first, I guess. Yeah. So I think this is a seeker. I think it is one I'm going to, I would tell people who haven't seen it to go see it. Um, but I would, I would preface it being like, Hey, it's going to take some work. Cause it's the work is the, it, to me, in let, if you can shut off your brain and just watch a movie, um, and I, and both you and I have made reference to the fact that we kind of can, that we but can kind of get lost in a, in the movie. There's a difference but if the between movie, technical shutting off and empathetically shutting off. Yeah. And, and the movie, it's uh, the, the themes and everything that the movie's asking for, um, or asking you to examine that's the, it's the introspection with yourself that made me uncomfortable. It's like, oh, why do I find that interesting? Or why is that intriguing? And why is that? Why can I not look away from this car crash? And maybe uh, going to another of his great 90s movies, Crash, um, which is um, not to be confused with the Oscar-winning Paul Haggis movie, which is far less um, well-constructed than Cronenberg's <laughs> Crash. Uh However, so what would you, would you say this is one for people to seek out? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that it should it's it definitely deserves a watch. If you're the kind of person anyways who likes watching movies for something more than just escapism and something more than just sort of simple entertainment, uh I think that it's a really important watch. I think that um it has a lot of important things to say. It has a lot of interesting and valuable uh discussions that happen and i think that um in general i would recommend it to most people i would also obviously preface it by saying if you know who cronenberg is probably not what you're going to expect because you're probably going to expect the fly or the brood like we talked about before you know his body horror stuff so like unless the cronenberg you know is history of violence and true and, uh, eastern promises true the cronenberg. cronenberg that i'm i know is this movie and cosmopolis those are the two that i know best and both phenomenal films but and kind of a lot of similar um not necessarily directly similar but sort of they're, they're similar movies in some ways so anyways point being worth seeking out very much so and just a couple quick notes because i forgot about them to insert them at any other point is uh one according to wikipedia amazon prime has picked up a series version of this movie wait hold on to what how to star how to star rachel vice okay um, so i don't know if they're doing a gender swap thing or she's playing the claire role but it's some they're somehow doing a dead ringer series um, I am struggling really hard to unless see. Unless they're okay. just, unless they're taking the basic concept of twin gynecologists or twin doctors or twin something, and then they're just going to play with that and slowly bring you into the mania of and, do a sort of like a Hannibal style kind of show, perhaps or something. Yeah, and you know, and maybe you know, and they're if you slow play it and you get more detailed with things. <clears> uh, <throat> 
like yeah you i think you we could, do live in a world where you can get more detailed with things there's a lot more uh, freedom in what you yeah can i mean put into rachel vice is like an a-list actress so she's like not going to sign up for any snuffy type no 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 stuff yeah, like yeah. that or anything but like um that was all the information and i didn't look up any information because it's one of the last things i looked at before i came to do this podcast but i'm c- curious so that was announced in august 2020 I'm so it would have been curious. it would have been shooting by now and then coming out this spring or this summer fall depending on the covid situation and whether yeah they exactly to go ahead with so everything if everything went to plan i'm ju- just saying and you gen- generally by the time things get announced in like trades it's they're already in production or true, close to true. production yeah um and then the other thing was that this movie, as we mentioned earlier, was based off a book called Twins by uh, Barry something. Barry Wood and Jack Giesland are the two credited writers of that novel. Oh, okay. So I, I which only is based re- on a real story. Yeah. So it's based on a real story, as we described, the two brothers earlier from New York, two gynecologist brothers. Um, and it was called Twins. Uh, so when this movie was in production... Universal Studios was also prepping a movie that would later star Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito as two <laughs> twin brothers. And oh and it was called Twins and they I'm very much to... didn't want this movie to come out and either take the shine off like for the confusion of the titles cuz they were both coming in at 88 cuz cuz copyright with titles is a little weird um as far as like how you can copyright them but they, they legit s- paid titles, yeah they paid them to not use the title twins. that's insane that's amazing and i don't i i wonder if that went to the budget of the film because if so i mean i hope so, well spent but, yeah yeah because yeah, that's, that's great but also like i'm now trying to picture danny devito and arnold schwarzenegger as twins and it's real difficult <laughs> you've never seen the movie twins? no i haven't oh, i've never even heard uh, of it until this oh really yeah. it's uh it was like a famous like buddy comedy Oh the God. the premise being that there is, I mean, we don't need to get into it on this podcast, but if no one's seen it, it's, it is kind of a fun romp from the eighties, but it's like, it's essentially about in vitro fertilization and then they're doing some gender modification. And so the way, the only way they can figure that out is essentially to make one awesome egg and with one crappy egg. And so Danny DeVito is all the crappy is the crappy egg. So he comes out and he's like not physically like proportioned well and everything. And then Arnold comes out as this like chiseled. And then they meet up later in life once they've realized they're twin brothers and, and, uh, you know, and comedy ensues. Sounds like something I might actually give a watch to <laughs> one of these days, just Anyways, for the lulls of it. But what would you rate this uh, movie oh. that is very much unlike Twins Ooh, starring yes. Danny DeVito? Uh, so, I'd have to give it like 24 solid uh, syringes full of drugs, I think. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That sounds like a good weekend. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give it seven jeremy irons's oh my god that's a lot of jeremy irons's could you imagine seven instances of himself playing against each other it would be it would be a madness it It, would also make this movie really confusing it would but i would oh my god i'd love it i don't know i have this thing i just love jeremy irons i don't know what it is i haven't even seen that many of his movies but like every time i see him in something i'm like yes jeremy irons well you should check out die hard three I mean, Die Hard 3 is a, uh, it's a movie. <laughs> he plays, he plays, he plays Alan Rickman's brother yeah. from the first movie. I do remember that one. And that was, uh, unfortunately, uh, the movie is not, um, 
That's not a great movie. No. So there we are. That's, uh, yeah, I think that's all we got for today. If you want to give us a follow on social medias, we are on Instagram at Cinematics Podcast and on Twitter at Cinematics Cast. Uh, there are spoilers in this episode, so if you haven't seen the movie and you want to not have it spoiled for you, check it out before you listen to the show. Otherwise, thank you guys very much for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.